If there is one thing that preaching has caused me to grow in, it would be depending on God and trusting God. It has also taught me that I don't do that well enough and that there's plenty of room to grow. And uh, So with that thought, I will begin in prayer before we get into our text. Lord, we are we're here this morning, Lord, because we need you. We're here because we need and desire to be built upon your word. Lord, we're here because we need one another. And, and Lord, we are here above all things, Lord, we're here to worship you, Lord, because you are worthy. You are righteous. Lord, and we we praise you for the victories that you have won and the, the, the victories of, of righteousness and the victory over, over sin, Lord, the victory over death. It's your desire, Lord, to share your, your glory with us, and, and it's through these victories that you are willing. Lord, just, just remind us, uh, Lord, every day that our only true strength comes from you. You in us, help us and give us that desire to, to seek, to face, to examine, to find our weaknesses, Lord. And, uh, to just know, and not to just know these thoughts, Lord, but to experience them, experience what it means to be an empty vessel that you can fill, Lord. So we just look to you to continue to work in our congregation and in, in each one of us, Lord. In your name, amen. So we often speak about the glory of God. It was in our music today. Um, we, we talk about it all the time. We, it, again, it's in our music. It's in our language. It's in our conversations. It's in our theology. But I wonder how often, how, how often we take that for, for granted and, and how well we are at defining what glory really is. And so I just want to start with a thought that the glory of God is his beauty. It is what radiates from God. It is his beauty. It's not one thing. It is all that God is, and it's all that God has ever done. It's all that we see whenever we see the works of God. It's his power. It's his kindness and justice and wisdom and holiness. Just to name a few of his characters, characteristics. In it's the essence of all of God's characters working together at one time, in all time. It's magnified in the oneness and the love in the Trinity. Even wrath works together. It works, wrath works right alongside all of God's characters and is part of his beauty and his glory. And that's something we have to learn. If we're going to enjoy our Lord, if we're going to enjoy the glory of our Lord, and remember, this is the glory he wants to share with us, 
If we want to enjoy that glory, we need to understand that. And this text this morning is teaching us that all of God's victories ultimately are about sharing his glory with us. And so if you would, turn to Psalms 24. In the Pew Bible, I think it's on, yeah, 458, page 458. Um, this Psalms captures two of the great motifs that fill the word of God. The first motive is the glory of God, and the second motive is the redemption of man. We find them both in this text. This psalm makes it clear, though, that the glory of God is the great motive, and that the redemption of man really, it's not about man so much as it is about the glory of God shared in man. So if you'd like, I'll read the text. If you'd like, you can follow along with me. Psalms 24, verses 1 through 10. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There's an outline. Another thing about the glory of God, just remember... It was Jesus went to that cross. One of those things that drove Jesus to the cross was his desire to share his glory with you, with man. That drove him there. There's an outline in your bulletin, and it breaks this psalms down into three parts. Verses 1 through 2 concerns itself with the boast, God's boast of his glory. That's verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 6 concerns itself with this unapproachableness, God's glory being unapproachable. And then verses 7 through 10 is celebrating. It's concerned with the, the glory of God shared. And this psalms is a psalm of David, and it's considered a royal psalms. And remember that it was in our song today. But that it's in David that the royal line, the genealogy begins that leads to Jesus, Jesus the king, the king of glory. And David knew this. It had been prophesied. In verses 1 and 2, and I'll read them again. In verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters, 
these verses describe the world in all its fullness, the world and all that is in it. It, it describes it that, that God owns it and that he owns us and all that we have, he owns. He gives it to us. He's given it to us freely, but he owns it. And here in verses 1 and 2, David is basking. He's boasting. He's basking in the glory of God. And it's, it's, it's God's boast. He's using David, but it is God's boast here. Listen to God in Psalms 19. You don't have to turn there, but in Psalms 19, just a couple of little, just a couple of verses from Psalms 19. And we're, again, we're looking at the boast of God's glory, but here in Psalms 19, listen to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And remember this, in Psalms, in the beginning of Psalms 50, verses 1 and 2, Again, this is God boasting. For every beast of the field is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. If, if I was hungry, I would not tell you. And then listen again to God in Job, chapter 38, verses 4 through, through 13. Again, this is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the seas with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it, and set the bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Just stop and think about it. If God can create a universe with his voice and just a few words at that, what can he do? What does he want to do in you with this? This is a library of God's voice. I don't mean it's exhaustive, but compared to the, to the volume words that he used to create the universe, just think. He want, he's using this. He wants to use this to create something in you. And it has to do with his glory and the sharing of his glory. It's what we were created for. Scripture holds so much more of this kind of language, of God boasting of his glory. I, I think the point's made, though. I hope the point is made that God is not afraid to boast. When we, when we boast, 
we humans, we boast, it is out of our pride. It is a fool's attempt to satisfy a thirst for recognition. We are not seeking God's face. We are seeking our own glory. You know, so many of us have made an art out of boasting, you know, and, and chuckling it up or covering it up or some little ploy to, to hide it or to make it okay. And, and, and many of us just let that go, I mean, because we all do it. Uh, but when God boasts, as we've heard him this morning, he is not boasting to satisfy any need that he has. He's boasting for us, for our good and for our needs. That's what's going on. That's why God boasts. God wants us to know his glory. He wants us to be overwhelmed by it and to be taken by his glory. We, again, we've been created for it. David, in Psalms 8, just listen to David in Psalms 8. I'm reading the first six verses of Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over all of your works. David is singing and is amazed here. He is amazed at how the Lord has allowed man to participate in, in his glory. But then when we come back to our text... Psalms 24, and we look at, we come to the next point, verses 3 through 6. David sings a little bit of a different tune. He's singing or he's lamenting about the inability of man to even approach the glory of God. Verses 3 and 4 Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted his soul up to an idol? Or sworn deceitfully? The hill of the Lord, in David's mind, of course, we're in the, in the Old Testament. David is writing this psalm. There's a reason why he's writing this psalm. What's in David's heart is... What he's thinking here, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? He's, he's referring to the kingdom of God, to the temple of God. He's referring who can go into the temple of God. And who may stand in his holy place is referring to standing in the presence of God's glory. And here in verse 3 and 4, God, David seems to be asking a question, and, and it goes like this. This God, remember the God of verses 1 and 2 and all the other boasts? 
this God of verses 1 and 2? Really? The God of creation, the God of all his power and his glory, worthy of all his boasts and more, in fact, much more? Really, who can approach the glory of God? He knows the answer. He knows the answer. He's writing poetry here. He knows the answer, but he also is very aware of the sin in the world and what sin has caused and how sin has broken the world and how sin has broken the relationship between God and man. And again, that relationship was one of glory. God created us to share his glory. And that had been broken. It had stopped us from participating in the nature, the nature and the glory of God or even, even standing in its presence. David is writing this psalm out of the gratefulness of his heart. He was bringing the ark into the, into the city of Jerusalem. And that's the occasion that's on here. The, the, the ark is being brought into to Jerusalem, and, and David is just reveling in this. All of Israel is reveling in this. And God had Israel build this ark. It was a wooden box. They covered it. God had them cover it with gold. And then God used it as his throne. He filled it with his glory. And then he used it as his throne on earth. And God did this. He, he gave the possession of this box then. Once it was filled with glory, once it became his throne on earth, he gave possession of it to the Israelites, to David and his people. And David did this so that they would know that he was their God, the God of all boasts. This God, the true God, was their God. And that he had called them out of the world to be his people, to participate in his glory. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on in David's heart. But this ark was more than just that. It was also a history lesson. For us, a history lesson. For the, for the Jews, it's a very real lesson. It was a lesson to the whole world, for that matter, that the relationship between man and God had been literally shattered. It was shattered by sin. It was shattered by our pride. This box is not quite, this box filled with the glory of God is not quite what God had in mind when he created you. Not at all. Whenever Israel would travel or go into battle, they would carry this ark with them. They would carry the throne of God with them. The priests were in charge. God put the priests in charge of this ark. And they would carry it a half a mile out in front of the people. God had them cover it with a veil. The priests carried it. And yet they still, and it was a half mile in front of the people, but God had them cover this, this ark, this box filled with his glory, with a veil. And that's because even the priests could not look upon the glory of God. This, this is a constant reminder. It was a constant reminder for them. It should be a reminder to us 
as a history lesson that, that the power, just, just a reminder of the power of God's glory. And again, that is the power, that, that is the glory that God wants to share with us. But it is a reminder that the power of God's glory, glory and the separation of sin or the separation that sin had caused, it's a reminder of that. And it is also a strong statement, this idea of carrying it out in front of them as they traveled or they went into to war, into battle. It's a strong statement that we must put God before us, in front of us. And it's worth asking yourselves today, where are you with that? Where is God in your priorities? When God goes before us, we are blessed in his glory. And that is a choice. It is a choice. God has allowed it to be a choice. And I think that God has allowed it to be a choice because it's not about legalism. It is about love. And the way that love is manifested And because of what love is, that God has allowed, God in his wisdom has allowed this to be a choice. And so look at your own lives and ask yourself, what choice have you made? What priority does God have in our lives? I'm asking myself the same question. I don't, if I'm honest, I don't really like that, the answer. But, uh, you know, when we're honest with ourselves, do we keep God in our back pocket? Pull them out when we need them. Do we wear them emotionally on our sleeve to feel good? Or is he the Lord of our life, the Lord of all? Is he everything to us? There was a time when God allowed Israel's enemies to capture the ark this throne of God, Israel's God, Israel, the ark of, of Israel's God, God allowed the Philistines to capture it. The Philistines were pretty excited about having captured this, this ark. Uh, and maybe in their mind they thought it was really God. You know, they had made gods and it was just a figure. Um, but they, had, they were really excited about having captured the ark of Israel's God. And to be an object lesson, to be used as an object lesson by God, no thanks. Uh, no, that, 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 this does not sound good. Uh, but those poor fools took it back to their city. They took this ark that they had captured, God's throne, filled with his glory. They took it back to the city, and when it... When they opened it up, God brought forth famine, disease, death. God slaughtered great, a great many of them, is what Scripture says. And for seven months, they moved this box from city, this ark. They moved it from city to city to city to city. And death and destruction and judgment followed, followed it. They couldn't find any more cities to take the box. So they brought it into the temple. They had a temple for their own god. The god's name was Dagon. And they brought this, this ark of God, Israel's god, 
the true God. They brought that into their temple as a trophy for their own God. And when, it, when they did, the head fell off of their God. His arms fell off, and then the rest of them went boop, right into the whatever, into the ground or whatever they had there for flooring, but it just fell over. They finally, they finally returned the ark to Israel. And there's a whole lot more to this story. But I think that's enough for the purpose of the message today. But the point here is these people didn't lack intelligence. These Philistines, they, they were dead. That was their problem. They were dead. They were spiritually dead. They were of the world, and the world had made its choice. And it wasn't God. Not the God that created them. And God is doing all this, though. God is not a mean tyrant. God is doing this to woo Israel and the world to him. He's waking up the dead with his actions. Depravity was at work in the minds of these people, and they couldn't discern anything spiritually from the true God. Just think of all the spirituality in our world today. Just think of it. Hollywood's full of it. News reports are full of it. Our schools are full of it. And a shame on the church, but the church is full of it. There was another time a man in Israel named Usa. He reached out and he touched the ark. Now, he was only trying to stop the ark from falling. But as soon as he touched the ark, God struck him dead. That ark had been put on a cart, and they were moving it. They were moving it. And again, God's not a mean tyrant. He, he, this box was filled with his glory. It was his throne on earth. He gave it to Israel as a possession. This was a glory that he wants to share with them and us. And they just, God had told them how to, how to handle this. He wanted them to see, connect his glory to the boast of his glory, to the, to the glory that he wants to share with them, the glory that he's created the wor world with, that he created us with. And what they had done is they had taken this box, they had totally ignored what God said on how to handle it and how to carry it. They had taken that, that, that box, that ark, and tossed it on a cart as if it was a funeral, as if there was a dead body in that box, and they were carrying it that way. That's why God took Usa right there. Man, without question, without question, had lost the ability to be vessels of God's glory. Who can ascend into the holy hill and enter God's temple? Who can stand in God's holy place? Stand in his presence, the presence of his glory. David asks this question there in verses 3 and 4. But he does, he knows the answer. And he gives us the answer in verses 4 through 6. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek his face. 
who seek him, who seek your face. The answer is faith. And Abraham is the father of faith. And, and Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. You know, God, Abraham believed God, right? Not believed in God, believed God. Believed in his glory, believed in his word. And God counted that as righteousness. But Jacob was not resting or living on Abraham's faith. Jacob had been given his own faith. Him and his generation. It tells us that Jacob and his, his generation, they, they sought after God's glory. The important thing is they weren't seeking after their own glory. That's what David means, who, who seek your face. They seek the glory of God. They had faith in God his glory, his boast. In verses 7 through 10, then, we come to our third point in the message this morning. And, and David continues to, to sing and worshiping the Lord. And, and so I'll read verses 7 and 10 here. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Remember, David is writing the Psalms as an expression of his passion and his joy as he's bringing in the, the ark into Jerusalem. This is a victory march. It's a victory march of the, the battles that God, the Lord, had won for them. Samuel, the prophet, records this at length. I'll just go into it a little bit, but he records this, that David in Israel, at, he's recording this scene right here, this expression, this passion, this joy in Israel as they're bringing in the, the, the throne of God into their city, and and. David and Israel are shouting praises of joy with trumpets. David, the king, just imagine that. I mean, I'm not trying to put a pastor as a king, but just imagine Pastor Dan or, or Pastor Andrew, um, you know, our leaders here, our, those who we look to for, for uh, guidance when things are, when we are struggling, just overall guidance spiritually. But just think of them doing somersaults. I mean, here David, the king, is just flipping around. He's twirling. He's, uh, so I don't know, what are those cartwheels, uh, backflips? He's just, um, I don't know. I can't quite imagine that. But lift up your, uh, I, I don't know. That's amazing to me to think of the, that kind of passion, that kind of glory, or that kind of uh, joy in having the glory of God in a box that you can't even come close to. They're still carrying it out that far in front of them. And in verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, is saying to, to Jerusalem, pay attention. The Lord of all power and authority is entering your city. Celebrate with us and be lifted up, O you everlasting doors, is celebrating the eternal glory 
and will of God to share his glory with you. Again, this is a celebration of the passion. This is a celebration of the victories that God had won for Israel. The king of glory is their king, and they are his people. The Lord, mighty and strong in battle, fought for them and gave them this victory. His victories were their victories. And again, that's what they're celebrating. They know it's his victories that he has shared with them. And this is a celebration in verses 7 through 10. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end. Redemption, true redemption, had not come to the world yet or to Israel. God was not yet willing to fully, at least to the degree that he he plans on sharing his glory, he was not willing to share, share his glory in the way that he wants to. It's still in a box. They still can't really approach it. They still have restrictions, strong restrictions to that. The real victories had not been won yet. And you and I can be glad that the celebration was not intended to be over then or there. God continued to boast of his glory for the next thousand years. This is a thousand years before Christ. And God continued to boast of his glory. And not, he's pointing to Jesus, the king of Israel, the king of the world, and the Lord of glory. God wants our gaze and our hearts to be. He wants the, the gaze and, the, and the, the heart of the world to be fixed on Jesus. David and Israel are focused on their time, the time that they were living in, celebrating the victories of their Lord, and are overwhelmed with joy. The Lord of glory is their Lord. His victories are their victories. But then this psalm speaks to us also. There's a prophetic nature to this psalm that, that's looking forward, and it's, it's, look, it's looking forward to that promised king, the king of kings that would come in the line of David. Verse 10 again, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts? He is the king of glory. <laughs> Excuse me, because of hindsight, we know who that king is, right? Amen, it's Jesus. We know that. Two thousand years ago, when Jesus, God, put on humanity and came to Israel, he was offering the kingdom to the Jews. Jesus knew they would reject him as a king. They would deny him. But Israel didn't know that they didn't kill. They still don't know that they didn't kill Jesus. Jesus climbed up on that cross on his own, out of his own will. Yeah, he needed a little help. I get it. He was beaten next to death. But it was, again, it was his What drove his victories was his drive to share his glory. What drove him to that cross was, 
was his, his desire to share his glories with man. He was teaching the world what true love really was. And, and by the way, you know, that's, that's the love we have to imitate. Just remember about that. That's where we're going to go next week, is imitating this love. The victories that Jesus won through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we all know as those victories. Those are our victories. Jesus conquered all his enemies, and he made footstools out of them. We're no different than Israel in that way. We couldn't have won those victories. Not a chance. We can be sure, though, that the... That we, can, we can be sure of this, that the enemies, Jesus' enemies were his enemies because they were our enemies. Jesus' victories, Jesus victories are our victories. Sin had torn us away from the glory of God. And again, it's that glory that God intended us, intended to share with us. The Lord's victory is all about sharing his glory with us. Jesus' 30 years of living sinless with the, was his victory of righteousness. 30 years living sinless, it was his victory of righteousness. Jesus put it to Satan. I know Andrew was here just a few weeks ago, but Jesus put it to Satan. You know, I'm a little brother, and I just love big brothers. Um, but Jesus put it to Satan there in in the wilderness when he came to tempt Jesus. When, when Jesus had been hungry, starving, worn, weak. He was weak, and he allowed Satan to come and tempt him. Jesus allowed this, and, Je and Satan did come and tempt him, and Jesus took his righteousness and put it in the face I know that's ab-living a little bit, but that's what happened. Jesus put his, his righteousness in the face of Satan and said, leave, leave. This is not going to work. This isn't going to work. Leave. And it's a picture. It's a glimpse of what God and man can look like and what it is intended to look like. And Jesus wasn't defeated on the cross either. It was his victory over sin. And Jesus, the grave didn't hold Jesus either. It was his victory over death. And we all need these victories, and none of us could have had these victories on our own. Just praise God is why we're here every day. Or, excuse me, every Sunday. Why, why, why we worship on Sundays. It's why we worship God altogether. But we need these victories, and they're an everlasting answer to our sin and the heartaches that come with it. And, and if there was more time, we could sit here and, and I could share a couple of you, a couple of heartaches with you, and that would get you going. And, and I don't think we need to. I think that uh, we're well aware of our heartaches. But do we remember that it is sin that's behind it? Sin is behind all this heartache. Um, I, I can barely go there. I, I'm a I'm a, a wimp when it comes to emotional things, and I, 
Uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm not trying to go there. I would probably tear up it, to thinking of some of the heartaches in our lives and even some that I know about you guys. Uh, but uh, these victories of Jesus are our answer. They are an everlasting answer. Jesus is willing to impute his righteousness into us. And Jesus' victory over sin is ours. And don't kid yourself, you can have victory over sin. I don't mean you can be sinless, but you can have victory over sin. That was Jesus' example. That's what we need to learn from Jesus. And death, victory over death, is ours if we are his. If he has shared his glory with us. Now, Christ is not holding these victories back from us. Not in any way is he holding these victories back from us. All we need to do is to agree with God. We often talk about accepting God. Well, I want to look at it a little bit differently here. Because what we really need to do is agree with God that we are sinners and that we need a Savior and then trust in Jesus for his victories to become our victories. That is the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel of God. Amen. So next week, you guys, next week we'll look at what does it look like when his victories, be, what should it look like when his victories have became our victories? When, what does it look like to be a vessel of God's glory? How do we manifest the glory of God? Thank you, guys. I do appreciate the opportunity to come up here and uh, challenge myself in this area of, of preaching.